seated. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated because the king is alive. Amen? The king is alive. And that's one of the things that we've been talking about in our series on Philippians, that because Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It changes everything for you and for me. It changes everything for Faith Covenant Church. And if you've been with us this fall, you know that we are experiencing changes here at Faith Covenant Church. Uh, You see construction going on or the lack of stuff disappearing and the stage is shrinking because Faith Covenant Church is growing. There are new people here every Sunday, and if you're new today, I want to add my welcome to you. Uh, My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Would love to talk with you in the lobby after the service is over. Don't rush off too quickly. Uh, Last Sunday, we baptized four people and dedicated two new kids, right? Awesome. That's worth celebrating. We received eight new covenant partners who joined our church family to say that this is their family and they want to partner with us in ministry. And, and part of Paul's heart for the church in Philippi, this fledgling little church that he planted over 2,000 years ago, in his opening prayer in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more. And that's what we're talking about. When a a church grows, it's not just about numbers. It's about our love abounding more and more, not only for those who are here, but for the new people that God is sending us. And we want to celebrate the goodness of God's love in us, overflowing to others and having their lives transformed in the process. Amen? So that's kind of why we chose the the letter to the church in Philippi, because it's a letter of thanksgiving, and it's a letter of encouragement, but it's also a letter of challenge, right? When the apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was in prison, awaiting trial that, that, that could end in his own execution, And he expresses this deep love and this gratitude for for these friends of his, these partners in ministry, who even in their own uh, persecution by the Roman Empire, in their own poverty, because they didn't have a lot of money and wealth, they continued to support him in his ministry. And they sent this guy Epaphroditus to bring uh, financial gifts, but also the gift of encouragement and the gift of presence. And so because he loves them so deeply, he also wants to to challenge them to to not allow their own discord or their own conflicts to get in the way of this opportunity that they have to see their love grow as a part of their witness and their testimony to the presence of God at work in their lives. He wants them to remember the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything, and that the love of God that was revealed in Jesus not only becomes the new reality in which we live our lives, but it becomes the very model by which we learn to live our lives together in community. See, Paul's eager to remind them that it's our love for one another that is patterned after the love of God that's revealed in Jesus is what ultimately brings praise and glory to God. Our ultimate act of worship, Paul is saying, is to love one another well. 
And today we're going to focus in on verses 10 through 14 of chapter 4 that Jeff read a portion for us today. And we've been encouraging you, if you're not already in a study or a reading plan in the Bible, to be reading through the book of Philippians over this last month. Uh, And what we've been doing is rather than going verse by verse through the book, we've just been kind of focusing on different key elements that we think are significant for us in this season. And so today we're going to focus on verses 10 through 14 where Paul begins in verse 10 by saying, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity. Paul is rejoicing in this partnership that he has with his friends in Philippi. See, he's going back here in chapter four to the very beginning of what prompted him to write the letter to begin with. He wants them to know how grateful he is for their relationship together and their willingness to continue to partner with him. Even though Paul was in Philippi for only a short time, he and his companions, while they were there, uh, left behind this very small but diverse group of believers. The wealthy merchant Lydia, who who opened her house to become the first house church there in Philippi, uh, also met with the more blue-collar jailer's family who all came to believe together. And they were mixed in with this slave girl that was being used to, uh, to, to, to prophesy falsely. And they were, she was rescued from demons, and she was in the mix. And this is a diverse group of people from all different backgrounds, right? And they helped Paul plant other churches when he went from there, and they continued in that partnership. And even though they were actually suffering persecution and in poverty themselves, they continued to give generously and sacrificially because it was a part of their heart to partner with Paul. In week two, uh, our new pastor Jeff uh, talked to us about how Paul was also challenging him in the midst of this to recognize that their own disunity was the greatest threat to their experience of Christ in their midst. If they allowed themselves to become conflicted and not overcome their differences, they would miss the whole point uh, that we don't live in a world of scarcity right? We live in God's abundance, and and yet our world, and we're going to talk about this more this morning, wants us to believe that that we lack the things that we need to be happy, that we lack the things that we need to be content. And yet all the while, Paul is going to say, hey, I've learned the secret of contentment. Now, Now, if you were to buy a book that claimed to have the answer to the secret to contentment, do you think that would be a, a New York Times bestseller? No, (laughs) I think in our culture it would, but not if it's Paul's answer probably, right? Because I think our culture is searching for the answer to contentment, right? The pursuit of happiness is the American dream. And and yet nowhere can we find the answer that, that allows us to fully feel like we've arrived at that sweet spot of truly being content with our lives. I I wanna be content with my life. But, but I struggle with that. Do you, how many people today would like to be content with their life? I mean, wouldn't that be a wonderful experience? You see, Paul says when we begin to see God's generosity and his abundance in Jesus, we begin to be set free to, to humbly begin to serve one another out of that same generosity and abundance, and it frees us from the pursuit of all the things that always leave us unhappy and disappointed. And so he tells him again in verse 10 of chapter 14, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Of course you were, but you didn't have an opportunity. But then he also adds an important clarification. And I want to spend a little time on this because it's important that we don't miss this. 
In verse 11, he says, I am not saying this because I am need. I'm in need. And this is important because what he's wanting them to say is, I'm not just buttering you up so that you'll send me more money. Right? I'm not just buttering you up so that you'll send me more money. See, Paul knew that there were religious charlatans even in his day that were often trying to, people, trying to get people to give them more and more money. And so he was always concerned not to give people the wrong impression in his ministry. In fact, Paul would often refuse financial support from the churches that he planted in order that there wouldn't even be a hint of an unfair scandal connected to his ministry. And he also never wanted these fledgling churches that he planted to not only feel obligated to support him, but he didn't want them to become a bur- he didn't want to become a burden on them. And so as a result, we, we know that Paul often pursued other work outside of preaching and teaching, right? Paul had skills in making tents. And he became a tent maker, which seems to have most often been the means he used to earn extra income. If we go to Acts chapter 18, and we'll just quickly read verses 1 through 5, it tells the story. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. But then I also kind of quickly note that verse 4, it says, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came, though, from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So it was kind of a both and, right? When the need was there, he worked. When he was able to not work and he'd spend full time doing preaching and teaching, he did that. He was willing to be flexible and adaptable and use whatever skills God had given him as a part of a lifestyle of ministry. So for Paul, you see in other places that actually giving yourself to working hard, to doing your job well, to pursuing quality and excellence in whatever God has given you to put your hands to is a part of our testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives. And to be able to make a positive impact in the community that we are called to is also a part of our own discipleship to Jesus and our opportunity to grow in maturity as we become more effective partners together in living out the call of Jesus to be light in the darkness and hope in the world. Now, some scholars suggest that tent making for Paul wasn't just a, a side job that he pursued in order to earn enough money so he could preach and teach, right? We often talk about that as being bivocational, right? We do a side job that we're not really all that interested in in order to make some money to do what we really want to do. And and I I think that for Paul, maybe that wasn't exactly the case. See, for Paul, he had a more holistic understanding of work and ministry. And and that for those professional Christians like us pastors, we we get the the joy of being able to spend full time doing preaching and teaching. But, But the majority of people like you don't have that opportunity. And what I think Paul was wanting to teach early Christians and us together is that your work in the world is no less a ministry than whatever we get to do here at church on Sunday because your work is connecting with people in the world and it's creating an opportunity for you to be light in the darkness. 
But too often we want to separate the the secular from the religious and say somehow whatever I do here in church because I'm a full-time pastor is somehow more important or greater than whatever you get to do in your life and in your work uh, and in your homes with your own kids and with the neighbors that you live with. And really the Bible says it's just it's opposite of that. We should flip that upside down, right? You, you guys are able to allow us to be your servants to hopefully equip and train everyone to be able to live out the kind of lifestyle that Paul's saying 24-7 outside of this room one hour a week. You see how that, that's a totally different way that we often experience church today. By pursuing his trade, Paul came into contact with other merchants and travelers, which gave him an opportunity to build bridges of relationship to the the culture and the community where God had called him to serve. And it allowed him to be able to be a part of supporting the community that he was contributing to as well. See, this was all part of Paul's vision of what genuine partnership in the gospel looks like. I want to look at Acts 20 verses 33 to 35 real quick to get another picture of his attitude here. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, in other words, Paul doesn't engage in tent making just so that he can do his real job of preaching. In Paul's view, the full variety of work that we are given to do as human beings is is caught up in the mission of Christ to be present in the world and can be used by God and transformed by his spirit to be a ministry of service. Ministry just means serving, right? We're, We're serving others. We're loving our neighbors well. So for Paul, whether it was in the sewing shop or being in the marketplace, having conversations or in the synagogue or even in prison, in this new understanding, Paul could see that was part of his calling. It was part of his vocation to serve Christ. See, in all of these contexts, Paul is participating in Christ's project of restoring the world to health and bringing the world back to himself. And it's in this sense as well that Paul continues to invite all Christians to follow his example. According to the Bible, Christians actually only have one vocation or one calling. And that calling is that we have been commissioned to be witnesses of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our one calling. And if we understand that that's our one calling, then everything else that we do can be brought up into that, which brings deeper meaning and value to to your work, to your your family life, to to what it means to be a neighbor, to, to how you get involved in your community. All of those things find deeper meaning and value when we understand our one vocation, our one calling is to witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for Paul, you see, it's not about being bivocational in the sense of having different callings. It's having one calling, but finding a way to live that calling out in every sphere of our lives. In this sense, Paul's example of tent making isn't having a secondary calling that's somehow less important than preaching or teaching. Rather, it's a primary example of how all of us are called to live out our Christian life to Jesus. How about you this morning? 
How do you view your work? Whether you're uh, uh, on a career path or whether you're a, a homemaker or, or whether you're a student and your work is studying and turning in papers or, or whether you're retired. And, you know, when you, if you're not dead, you're not done. You still have work to do. In fact, everybody tells me you're busier in retirement than you are when you were working full time. If you think about your work, the, the, the things you give your time and energy to pursue, is that a part of your calling from God? Does God have any sense of inviting you to see all that as part of how you can worship him through the life that he's given you to live? You see, I think the reality is that Paul would tell us you can do your work, whatever it is, to the best of your ability, and it becomes as if you're doing it unto the Lord. See how that works? You can do whatever it is that you're giving your time or energy to do, doing it to the best of your ability, and it becomes an act of worship unto the Lord. When I was in my last few years of college, I got a job with America West Airlines, and I was a ramp agent out on the tarmac in Phoenix, Arizona, where we'd get up to like 145 degrees in the summer, right? You imagine the heat coming off that asphalt in the desert in the middle of summer, I had a, a maroon jumpsuit that I would wear, and it was like this dark maroon, you know, America West logo. And by the end of the day, it was, it was white because it was caked with dried salt, right? The sweat would come out, and it would dry, and it'd just be caked with salt. And, and so there's all kinds of jobs that you can do as a ramp agent. And one of the jobs uh, that nobody wanted to do and everybody shied away from was to be the one person who took out the trash, Okay, so you, you get these trash bags, right? And the people pull all these bags off these airplanes that have been flying for hours and hours, and they're filled with all kinds of yucky, smelly, wet, gross coffee, soda, tea, leftover food, and they've been baking in these tin cans for hours, right? And then they throw them all in this cart, and you have to take a little tug and drive it to the, the waste bin. You have to throw away all these bags, Right? Well, these bags are not all that, like, sanitary or secure, right? All that stuff is, like, leaking out of them. And so as you're throwing these bags, this stuff <laughs> gets all over you, right? It just, it, nobody wanted that job. But everybody had to go on a rotation, right? So every once in a while, I got the job of taking out the trash. And there was one evening, and I remember it was late at night, and I was out there throwing the trash into these dumpsters. And I just felt like the Spirit of God invited me to say, you can do this as an act of worship. And it totally transformed my experience of taking out the trash. If I didn't take out the trash, somebody else was going to have to do it, right? Would I wish that on somebody else? And he can tell you the lightness of my spirit and the joy with which I began to throw bags of trash <laughs> was a whole new experience of life. I actually became content as the trash taker outer. <laughs> right? You see, that the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. It can transform the grossest, most negative experience of our lives into being an act of worship that produces joy and lightness of spirit. And we can find contentment in any circumstance. You can see your work as an opportunity to be a witness to Jesus first by how you live and work and whether you focus on quality and excellence and doing the best that you can do no matter what anybody else sees, but doing it as, a, as an act of worship to God. 
And then in those opportunities that God gives you to have relationships with coworkers and other people, whether it's in our own homes or in our community or in our schools, to see those as opportunities to love other people and to serve them in humility and in care because God calls us to care about our neighbor. And finally, if the door is opened, to simply share your story about the good news that Jesus has become the source of contentment in your life. You see, it's in this understanding that Paul tells the Philippians in verse 11, I'm not in need. (laughs) Thanks for the gift. I really do appreciate your partnership and your friendship. I'm not asking for more money because what you really don't understand maybe is that I really don't have a need because I found the secret of being content. And that's where he goes on in verse 11b. For I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living plenty or in want. I can do all this, or I can do all things through him who gives me strength, through Christ who gives me strength. You see, the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. Paul is in prison, facing death. And yet the one who is powerful enough to subject all things to himself has enabled Paul to face even the most grim circumstances of his life with joy and contentment. In the same way, the Philippians are poverty-stricken, persecuted, even struggling with divisions among themselves. And yet Paul claims that nevertheless, God will be the one who will supply all of their needs if they keep their eyes focused on Jesus. Not despite their hardships, but in and through their hardships. As they trust in him to provide what they need, knowing that God is at work in them, they can be assured that the result will come through God's power and not their own wisdom or strength. See, Paul wants them to understand that that joy in our own lives is not dependent on the alleviation of physical discomfort. Even though he's in prison, he says he's not in need. In fact, he's learned to be content in every circumstance because really what he's saying is contentment is an attitude of the heart. And it starts with our own relationship with Jesus and whether or not we really trust that God is a good God who loves us and will provide for everything that we truly need. Because if if we don't have that attitude of our heart, we're always going to be looking outside ourselves to someone else, to something else, to somehow make us happy, to fulfill our need, to make us whole, to make us complete. And none of it will ever truly satisfy because there's only one place in our heart that is designed for God and he's the only one that can fill that need. Yet, couldn't we honestly say that that's opposite of how the world would interpret things? And isn't that why so many people spend so much time pursuing money, fame, power, because we think that somehow it's going to give us the ability to control our own lives and to build our own happiness. And we think that in the end, we're going to find contentment when in the fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Men and women, I want to suggest to us this morning that the problem is, as Jeff shared two weeks ago, that this continually conditions us to focus on what we lack rather than being able to be content 
with the life that we have. Let me say that one more time. The problem is that this attitude and this focus of our lives trains us to continually focus on what we lack rather than being able to be content with what we have. Think about this for a minute, right? Just let's pull back and look at the culture in which we live. Do we understand that our entire commercial economy has become driven on the principle of discontentment? Our entire commercial economy has become driven on the principle of discontentment. What we have isn't enough, so we have to be motivated to go out and buy more. And so whether it's a a new car or the latest fashion or the new gadget, it is all designed to become planned obsolescence. We are designing our things to become obsolete so that we have to go out and replace them sooner and sooner. And in this culture, we are being conditioned continually to be dissatisfied with our lives so that we'll go out and buy more. The problem is when that attitude creeps its way into our lives and into our relationships, it's not only our economy that suffers, but it's our marriages that suffer. Because marriage was never planned to be obsolete. We live in a disposable society that has become to to think of relationships as interchangeable and disposable because we have so many choices, we want to just continually have more choice. But it's the overwhelming choices that we have that continually lead us down the wrong path. A culture of planned obsolescence in a disposable society threatened to undermine our ability to ever be content. Even while we spend our lives searching for more, we go to school. Why? Why do we go to school today? To get a higher paycheck. We search for a job that will fund the lifestyle that we want to have. We seek friends and partners that will enhance enhance our experience of life. The reality is that Jesus clearly warned in a world without God, money and the power that it provides to pursue happiness through the things of this world becomes the divine bottom line for our lives. That is to say, money becomes the God that we worship. And discontentment becomes the gospel that we preach. But in the face of this risk, Paul tells us he's found the secret. He's found the secret to contentment. Is it possible? Could it be true? What if it was? Would you buy the book? Would you buy the book? I'd buy the book. I'd see the movie. I'd watch it over and over again because I'd want to be content. The source of this attitude of the heart and this perspectives on our lives can never come from ourselves alone, Paul says. It comes only through the reality that Jesus is alive and he wants to give it to us as a gift. It's only through him, Paul says, that we're able to do any of this. And if we understand that this is the truth, then we can begin to do all things through Christ. Work, play, love, hope, invest our money, spend our money. All those things can be done through Christ. 
Because it's his righteousness at work in us. And we talked about uh, how righteousness is a part of being in right relationship with God and with others and with our money and with our devices and with the world around us. Through Christ, we can experience right relationship with those things. And then it's his righteousness that overflows in our lives. And you know what that leads to? Contentment. Because we're no longer striving to somehow make our own selves happy. We're receiving the gift that God says, you don't have to do it anymore. I've done all the work. There's nothing more that you need. There's nothing more that you can do. You just have to sit back and enjoy the ride. Oh, but that's so hard. (laughs) Because it means we give up control, right? And it also means that sometimes we have to give up what we want. You understand there's a difference between what we want and what we need. And we go to God and we have all these wants and we think that if we don't get what we want, we're not going to be happy. And so we pray to God and we ask for the things that we want, but all the while we might be missing what we truly need. And God never promised to give us everything we want, but he promised to give us everything that we need. And therefore we don't have to worry about it and we don't have to be afraid. Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They get everything they need. They don't have to worry about what they're going to wear or how they're going to feed themselves. But we do all the time. Contentment comes from knowing that we are loved by the God who created us, who redeemed us through his son, Jesus, and is even here now empowering us by the presence of his spirit to live each moment with meaning and value and purpose in the economy of his kingdom. You see, it's this one truth that the one who has subjected all things to himself is able to redeem every experience of our lives and transform them for our good and for his glory. See, maybe the question is not, what do I want in this situation in my life? What is it that I really need? In your marriage this morning, uh, you might be in a, in, a, in a challenging, difficult circumstances because, you know, if you get two people in a room, you're going to have conflict. And so marriage just puts you in a box and makes you duke it out. In your marriage this morning, maybe you can ask, rather than what is it that you want? Maybe you can ask, what is it that you really need? And if you start talking about what you really need, maybe it can change the conversation. What is it that you want out of your career? Maybe what is it that you need in meaningful work? What is it you need to find meaning and value in life? And maybe it's not a a six-figure paycheck. Maybe it's the freedom to use your life to be a blessing to other people in ways that, that are only uniquely for you. And maybe you can find joy and contentment in a life of work when you're not pursuing the paycheck, but you're pursuing a sense of calling that God has on your life. It might change the whole dynamic in your work life. In any, in all circumstances, Paul tells us we need God's presence and his power both in times of plenty and in times of want. Otherwise, we're tempted to forget the grace of God and rely on ourselves or someone else, or something else for our contentment. Now, we're coming to a close here. We're bringing it in for landing. But let me go back to Paul's prayer, right? Paul started the whole thing by saying, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. 
My prayer is that your love may abound more and more. Men and women this morning, I want to finish this point by leaving you with this challenge. I want to suggest for us that if we are never able to be content with ourselves, we'll never be able to love another person generously and sacrificially. If we're never able to be content with our own life, we'll never be able to love someone else generously and sacrificially because we'll always be looking for what we can get out of it. And that's really the the key behind the challenge of the the three key learnings that that, that we brought out of our summertime, right? Travel light. We got to learn to say no to some of the good things in our lives to make room for God's best thing. We, we can learn to be more content when we don't feel like we have to do it all, but we can invest our time in a few things that, that are God's best things for our lives. And in that process, rather than, than thinking about all the things that we could do, let's, let's think about things that allow us to sh- pursue shared experiences with other people. And we said, if you want to be more than a tourist in life, you've got to have shared experiences with local people. Right? God invites us to invest our time in one another's lives, to love one another well. And part of the secret of being content is when we invest our lives with people who become friends and family in our lives. And the third one, again, was soul care, right? Soul care, soul care, soul care. Many people have asked since we introduced this, what is soul care? And, and that's a tough one to answer because there's a lot of different angles to that. But I would suggest for us this morning, based on Paul's words, that soul care begins with asking the question, what do I really need? And how do I allow God to supply my true need so that I can become content and begin to live my life in freedom and humility and joy? You see, the accomplishment of God's purposes in the world are not dependent on our human activity. God doesn't need you to work for him. But God's work in you and in me is dependent on our willingness to partner with him and allow him to do his work in us. See, it's a very different understanding. I'm not in need, Paul says. How many of us could say that this morning? I can't. I'm not in need, Paul says. I've learned the secret to being content. Verse 14, he kind of wraps up this section. Yet it was good for you to share my troubles. It's good for you to share my troubles. See, Paul's not focused on the money. He's not focused on the gift. He's focused on the relationship and the partnership. He has friends that are sharing his troubles. Paul values the fact that their gift was evidence of their partnership with him, that they cared about him and they were with him in the midst of his troubles. And we benefit when we give our lives sacrificially to God's purposes because it leads us to partner with others in the midst of our struggles and our challenges and we experience the presence of God in our relationships with one another. As we bring this series to a close, men and women, let's remember today that the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. The love of God revealed in Jesus not only becomes the new reality in which we get to live, but it becomes the very model that we can follow to experience joy and contentment and meaning and purpose in our own lives. And as Paul says later in verse 18, which we didn't cover today, he says, these kinds of experiences are a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. 
man, it's great to come to church on Sunday morning and sing louder than all heck and to, to be together in one room and to lift up the name of Jesus. But men and women, Paul is talking about a lifestyle of worship. That in all things and in every relationship, we can discover joy and contentment when we give our lives to God's kingdom and God's purposes. May our lives become such a gift to God as we share in one another's troubles, as we share our lives together as gifts to be given away, as genuine partners in Jesus Christ. And in the process, may we too discover the secret of being truly content in Christ Jesus who has graciously given us everything that we need. Amen.